This is How Did I Get This Far, a podcast tackling the basic skills and knowledge that we all completely missed learning. Soon enough, you'll stop having to ask yourself, how did I get this far? On this episode, wait, tilting your head back to swallow a pill actually makes it harder? It's time to find out, how did I take medicine this far? Hello everyone, we are going to take a shot at learning all the basics about medicine today. Giving us a healthy dose of education is our guest, Dr. Adam Goodkoff, Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine, which I'm sure we'll learn what on earth osteopathic means. Adam is an emergency medicine resident and one of the largest emergency medicine educators on TikTok. He is the co-founder of The MedLife, a YouTube channel with weekly videos from residency, study tips, medical education content, and more. And Adam teaches and motivates almost 1 million TikTok followers and 50,000 Instagram followers on education on medicine. Thanks for being here, Adam. Thank you so much for having me. So how did you turn a career in the medical field into like a social community? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So I kind of have always been into teaching and teaching is really what has inspired me from a young age. I mean, I used to teach swim lessons. I got involved with the EMS. I used to teach uh, CPR at all different levels for different providers. And so I loved medicine. I loved teaching. And I actually did an extra year in medical school as a teaching fellow. So I taught anatomy. I also taught ultrasound. And I kind of got towards the end of medical school and I felt like I'd come so far as a student because I went straight in from college. I was pretty young. So that whole like young twenties phase where you're figuring yourself out, I never really had that. I just was like school, school, school. And so I did that while doing medical school. And I felt like a lot of what I figured out was how to be a really good learner and in turn, how to be a good teacher or an even better teacher than I guess I, I had done in the past. And so I wanted to reach more people and we started with a YouTube and we used to do a pre-med YouTube and it kind of just fell off. I didn't have time and we, we, we couldn't keep up with it, but we revisited it. We wanted to do like a later in med school, maybe YouTube thing. And so we started doing YouTube and uh, my good friend and manager now, Josh said, you need to get on Instagram. That's where everyone's at. And I said, okay. So I got on Instagram and it actually just took off. Um, we did Instagram and still do Instagram, of course, and realized that there are a lot of people that want a look at what being a doctor or the road to being a doctor is like, in addition to actual helpful tips to make them a better student, make them a better learner in life. And some of the things that I've used to to get through a challenging uh, career schooling. And so we did that. And then TikTok came along and TikTok, I think has been the the biggest game changer for us. Um, You know, we were on YouTube and Instagram for a while. And after many people pushed me, I thank them all now greatly for pushing me to do it. Um, We started TikTok and the reach on there has been incredible. And the amount of people that we've been able to uh, educate and share science and medicine with has been amazing. And so uh, it kind of just snowballed. Uh, I really believe in the the philosophy of if you love something, do what you love. And if other people love that, they're going to come towards that. Um, So rather than trying to follow trends or do the, the hottest thing, I just do me and I try and give give people what I'm passionate about and uh, the people that enjoy that gravitate towards that space also. And uh, incredibly excited, like you mentioned to say, we're over 50,000 followers on Instagram now and we are so, so close uh, to the 1 million. Hopefully by the time this airs, we will be over 1 million TikTok followers. Yes, hopefully. Hopefully this podcast does help you with that as well. And uh, I think it's amazing that you're using your platform to make it a little easier to understand a topic like medicine because I know I have some very, very basic questions on here that you're probably like, wow, this should be something a child already knows. But you understand <laughs> that sometimes we just don't know this stuff. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm always happy. Another thing, part of the education is I really enjoy 
spending a little extra time with patients and, and educating them. And while nothing that I say in social media is medical advice, um, I love, you know, building that educational knowledge base for patients um, all around the world so that they can have those conversations with their healthcare providers. Fantastic. All right. So we'll get some basics, but first we'll start with a game since we always hear laughter is the best medicine. Uh, so we'll do superlatives. I'll give you um, a superlative phrase in association with this topic and you'll share your stories with them. Sure. Uh, so the first one is the easiest piece of advice that you can give as far as having a healthy life or at least doing some kind of preventative care. Sure. I think uh, a lot of things pop to mind with what you can do to stay healthy. Um, the catch-all in my mind is everything in moderation. You could, you know, recommend incredible exercise or incredible diets, but too much of anything is never good. Um, the same goes for too much McDonald's and too much sitting around playing video games or whatever it might be. So everything in moderation, I think, is kind of the, the catch-all phrase for what you can do. Obviously, um, having a primary care doctor and making sure that you're following up with them on a regular basis is, is equally as important, but everything in moderation, that's what I would say. Perfect. Love that. Moderation is key. All right. And then the most common health concern that you specifically treat. So I would say we see a lot of different complaints in the emergency department. And to be honest, the most common thing I treat now is COVID. Um, we see just tremendous numbers of COVID patients of all varying levels of sickness. Um, but that kind of is it's, it's, it's hopefully a subset that we won't see as much of in the future. But one of the most common things in the normal ER that we see is actually psychiatric concerns, um, oh. depression, anxiety, patients who are having a, a crisis, a mental health crisis from different diseases. So a lot of people don't realize that. They think of the trauma or the heart attacks and all that stuff. But we actually see a ton of psychiatric patients who are looking to get care or, or need care um, because they're having an emergency, uh, psychiatric emergency. And so uh, we see a lot of psychiatric patients. Wow. Uh, we'll go into also when you think you should go to a doctor and when you think you should go to a hospital, because I think it's kind of hard to know what the right first step is when you think you have a health concern of any kind. So we'll touch on that in a bit, but we'll do one more. Sure. The last one is the most common piece of advice that patients rarely follow. Mm. So I think I mentioned that one earlier a little bit, actually, but uh, follow up with your primary care provider. That is something I write in every note that uh, I see a patient on. I tell the patients verbally, please see your primary care doctor. And then so many of them don't see their primary care doctor. And the problem and what's really frustrating for providers in the emergency room is we see someone for a small snapshot of their life, maybe four hours of time, five hours of time in total. Um, your primary care doctor has known you for years. And so if you're having a problem, um, and we can talk about this later if you're interested, but what we do in the ER is very different than what people expect. Um, we don't tell you the cause of your chest pain. We tell you that you're not having a heart attack. And on the surface, that might seem similar, but they're actually very different approaches and very different goals. And so when we decide that you're not having a heart attack or any other life-threatening condition, it's no longer an emergency. doesn't mean it's not important, but it's not an emergency. Um, and so that's why we say you should follow up your primary care doctor so this can be appropriate look appropriately looked into and so many patients say well it's not a heart attack i don't need to do anything and you know again doesn't mean it's not serious um just means it's not something we're going to be able to treat in the emergency room okay well i kind of have one more follow-up question on that then sure i guess if someone's experiencing some kind of serious pain i'm assuming they're going straight to you because of uh, like a panic and then from there you're like mm, this isn't that extreme but you should go to a doctor because it might be something else that still should get your attention 
Sure. So yeah, that, that's a, a great segue. Kind of one of the things I love to share with the public and, and every patient that I see is to set an expectation. And the expectation in a reasonable person's head is I'm going to go see a doctor who's in the ER and that doctor is going to tell me what's wrong with me so that I can feel better. And that makes sense. Um, unfortunately, that's not what we do though. Our job in the emergency department is to make sure that nothing is going to kill you within the next 24 hours. Um, that's the short version of our job. And it's a very different way of thinking than almost any other area of medicine because the rest of medicine and surgery, their job is to think about the things that could be causing your problem and how they're going to either investigate that further or fix that problem. Um, so it's, it's a total kind of shift and people can be very frustrated because they come in with chest pain. We say, you're not having a heart attack. You're not having a problem with your lungs and you're not having a problem with the big vessels inside your chest. So we think it's safe for you to go home. And they say, well, I came in to know what's going on. I want to know. And so if you don't set that boundary up, uh, up front, you know, they're always going to be expecting a diagnosis or a reason or a solution. And to be honest, it's not what we do in the ER and it's not what we specialize in. We specialize in making sure it's not one of those conditions that is going to take your life within 24 hours. And if it is, we specialize in stabilizing and treating those conditions until we can get the appropriate services in the hospital to evaluate you and treat you further. Wow, that's pretty terrifying. You chose that as a career for your day-to-day life. That's so intimidating. It, it is a challenging um, and at times stressful uh, career option, but it's also very rewarding. Yeah, and it's very impressive. So good for you. I'm going to take Thank some you. more knowledge from you here. <laughs> so we're going to go into some simpler questions. Let's do it. Yeah, let's start off with vitamins. Something very, very simple. Um, so what are the vitamins that we typically need Um, And is it okay for them to be from supplements or should we be getting them from more organic resources like, I guess, food in the sun and wherever else we're supposed to get it? Sure. So there's actually a lot to unpack with vitamins. So we'll try and stay a little on the surface level here, but um, we do need vitamins. We all need a certain level of vitamins and we can obtain those from our diet and some things I'm assuming you're referring to vitamin D we can get from the sun. Um, The problem is that for the majority of North America, we aren't actually close enough to the sun to get a sufficient level from going outside, not to mention we're covered in coats and gloves and whatever else. Um, So there's a a short period of the year where we actually can get enough vitamin D from sun exposure. Um, So a lot of our vitamins do come in a supplemental form. Um, The other thing is that you can get vitamins of all types from different foods and different food groups. So my recommendation, uh, you know, loosely as as a one person to another is to eat a balanced diet. Um, And again, everything in moderation. Um, The thing with supplemental vitamins, uh, for the most part, they're not going to hurt you. Um, They're sold over the counter. And in the United States, almost any drug that's over the counter is relatively safe. Obviously, with the exception of intentionally misusing them, um, they're generally safe. The vitamins, though, have a hard time being absorbed from the gut into the body. And so a lot of times you will talk to someone who takes a vitamin and they notice that their pee smells funny or that it changes color or becomes a, a bright color or something that's oftentimes just the vitamins running straight to your system. So you're kind of just peeing out those vitamins. So I generally say eating a balanced diet will get you a good um, kind of spread of the vitamins that your body needs, but taking a multivitamin every day uh, certainly is not going to harm you, but specific questions, always talk with your doctor. Okay, great. And I'm assuming when you say the pee reference, um, is asparagus one of those things that you're referencing? Asparagus actually uh, is a little different. I don't know specifically why asparagus makes your urine smell so awful, um, <laughs> but it is it is a similar process where it kind of passes straight through the system. And for whatever reason, that component 
of asparagus passes right through to the urine. And uh, in the same way, certain vitamins, it, for anyone who's experienced it, you'll notice an hour or two after, or maybe you don't notice, but your urine will change color or may have a different odor. Um, and that, that can be associated with the vitamin. Okay. All right. We're going to switch gears now for another simple sure. health question. The difference between a viral infection and a bacterial infection. How are they treated? What does that look like? And how do you know the difference? Sure. So pre-COVID time, uh, infections like the common cold, for example, or having a cough could be from two causes, a virus or a bacteria. Uh, bacterial infections are actually a lot less common when you think of like cold symptoms or runny nose or a cough. Uh, those are most often caused by a virus. Now, on the molecular level, viruses and bacteria are quite different, and the way that we treat them is very different. Bacteria are somewhat living. They respond to medications that stop the process of replication and stop the living process, um, to, to kind of put it in simple terms. So when we take an antibiotic, that's killing off bacteria. If you have a viral infection, it doesn't have the same uh, components inside the cells that a, a bacteria uh, would. And so using those medications that affect bacteria actually have no effect on the virus. And what it does is it sets us up for antibiotic resistance. So this is another thing that we face all the time. And again, in, in pre-COVID times, we would see this a lot more. If somebody would have a runny nose and say, I want a Z-Pak because I had a doctor one time tell me I needed a Z-Pak which is just a common antibiotic that we use for actual bacterial sinusitis. But again, the most common cause is viral. So it can be very tough to explain to a patient that your symptoms, given the amount of time that you've had them and the severity are probably viral and doing an antibiotic, not only is it not going to help you, but it could hurt you down the road because you could develop bacteria that are resistant to that medication. Because all of us have what we call flora. It's a baseline level of different bacteria in our body, some of which are, are harmful, some of which are not. But what happens is when those get run out of check, we can have a worsening infection or you get exposed to them from the outside. Um, taking a antibiotic can kill off those baseline levels and basically send things all out of whack. So what do you take if you have a, like a regular viral infection, since you say that is more common? How does that work? So actually we don't have treatment for most viral infections. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of types of viruses. And the reason that we don't have treatment is they mutate very quickly. And to be honest, uh, the common cold is really not that harmful. It makes you feel like crap and you just don't want to get out of bed, but right. nothing really comes of it. In seven to 10 days, your symptoms are gone. Um, and so to spend you know thousands to millions of dollars of healthcare money and research on trying to develop something that might stop the common cold. Number one, for medical reasons, is almost impossible because of how varied the common cold is. But number two, it just really isn't worth it. You know, when we have things like cancer and you know severe heart disease and other things that medications can really make a, a prolonging of someone's life by developing that medication, you start to weigh the, the time and money spent and it doesn't make so much sense to stop something that really doesn't have a huge effect um, on, on uh, individual people. I still say the best medicine is, is sleep, hydration, chicken noodle soup, whatever your <laughs> preference is, um, but you just need some time to rest. Okay. Well, we'll do another kind of simple one. Um, what about allergies or asthma? How Are those ever preventable or it's kind of inevitable if you are bound to have one of those? 
So not an easy, I wish medicine was black and white and I could give yeah. clear answers. <laughs> Way to make this an easy podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, so asthma is a, a reactive disease in the most simple form. Our body uh, gets something in the airway that it does not like. And it responds to that by clamping the airways down and making it hard to breathe. And little known fact, it's actually the problem in asthma is not getting air in, the problem is getting air out. Um, and so, but asthma and any other allergies, a lot of them are genetic. Um, they can be from things that you're exposed to young, but a lot of this is, is genetic. Um, and the interesting thing, and I'm by no means an allergist, but one thing that I find very interesting is that people can come into and come out of allergies through their life. So you may have an allergy as a child that you grow out of and vice versa. You may be able to eat shellfish your whole life and at age 40 have an allergic reaction and not be able to eat that food anymore. Um, so I think we still have a lot to learn in the immunology space. And again, I am certainly not an immunologist or an expert, uh, in, in the, uh, field of immunology and allergy, but it is very interesting. And, and we are predisposed, a lot of us, to uh, things like genetically from, from our family. Yeah, it sounds like I might have another episode here to get someone who does yeah. specialize in that. That might be an interesting episode. Absolutely. Yeah, let's go into more about medication then. Sure. So what determines if a medicine is going to be over-the-counter or if it needs to be prescription? Nice. So this question uh, lays really well into what I mentioned earlier. Generally, it is a risk-benefit analysis. Medications like narcotic pain medicine, they're prescription for a reason because they have a very high potential for abuse and to cause harm. If you take too much pain medicine, it depresses your desire to breathe and ultimately stop breathing. Heroin is very similar in chemical structure to some of the pain medicines that we use. Now, people don't feel the same. It's not like injecting heroin when you get a pain medicine for a surgery, but the receptors function similarly. And that's why you hear about these life-saving medications that people are able to give when there's an overdose to start the breathing again. It's the problem is that the breathing is stopped. And so the same way, it's it, the, the pain medicines work in the same way. And so if that was over the counter and you were having a lot of pain and you took one and you said, it's not doing anything. And you took two, you said, it's not doing anything. You took three and you said, well, now the pain's starting to go away. Let me take four and you took a fourth pill, you might stop breathing and you might die. That's an incredibly dangerous medication to have available to someone who's not trained. On the flip side, and I'm going to leave Tylenol and aspirin and things out of this because they actually are quite dangerous medications. Um, but things like your, yeah, things like your anti-allergy medications, um, your vitamins, those type of things that are available over the counter, topical antifungal creams, very low potential for abuse, relatively low chance for harm. Obviously, anything, we sell bleach over the counter, you know? I mean, so anything can be harmful, but those medications in general are, are very safe. So the safer the medicine, the more likely it is to be over the counter. Um, and you'll actually see variation uh, from what we have in the US here to what's in, let's say, Mexico or the UK, um, what they allow over the counter changes. Wow. Okay. So I always tried to avoid these pain medications because for me, if it's something that's simple enough that something over the counter can help, I'm just that type of person. It's like, eh, my body will power through it. It's going to figure it out. Like I'm going to get through it. Sure. Um, but I do have a lot of friends that obviously like to take, um, you know, Advil or Tylenol or Motrin. Um, one of them is actually one of my listeners, but also one of my friends, um, Raina. She wanted to know, can you take a combination of these pain medications? Is that okay? And can you take them on an empty stomach? It's a great question. Um, 
you can take a combo, but only of specific medications. Um, I'll give a broad example, but I always recommend talking with your doctor for your specific concerns, especially with medications. Um, one very common combination for pain control is Tylenol and ibuprofen or Motrin. Um, the effects are potentiated in the body in two different ways. And so they both um, have some ability to decrease fever, but they decrease inflammation also. And actually ibuprofen or Motrin decreases inflammation much better than Tylenol, but Tylenol provides really nice pain control. And so if you combine those two medicines at the same time at the appropriate dose on the bottle, you can have a, a very significant, almost as strong in some studies, as strong as an opiate medicine. Um, for pain relief by combining those two. So it is it is a much safer option than giving opiates. Um, but as always with that type of dosing, and if you're requiring that type of pain medicine, you should absolutely, absolutely be talking with your doctor um, specifically. And can you take them on an empty stomach? I would ask my friendly pharmacist in the ER. Uh, I think generally the, the rule is eight ounces of water with any medication. Um, I always recommend if you're able to eat or at least put a large amount of fluid into your stomach to kind of uh, help the medicine be dissolved that you do that. Um, Motrin in particular will irritate your stomach if you take it completely uh, on an empty stomach. Um, and it does long-term use has the potential to, to cause ulcers and things. Um, Tylenol, I'm not familiar with any reason you couldn't take it on an empty stomach, but again, I always recommend at least eight to 10 ounces of water uh, when taking these medications. Okay. Do you have any other advice when it comes to swallowing pills or taking down liquid medication? I've always been horrible with taking liquid medication. So if you have any tips, I'd love to hear it. Liquid medication isn't like a syrup, do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> it literally makes me gag just thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. I don't blame you. Uh, the thought of liquid medicine sounds awful. I think the only liquid medicine I could think of that I, I actually use would be like a cough syrup when you have a really bad cough. Yeah. Yeah. I just follow it with, with water. For pills, one of the things, and my grandmother used to do this, and I think it was funny when I finally learned this, realizing that she'd been doing it wrong for her whole life, um, is that you'll see people put a pill in their mouth and then tilt their head way up to swallow it. And that actually makes it difficult to swallow. Uh, it's not the way that our swallowing works naturally, and nobody ever extends their neck and then swallows. Um, believe it or not, if you bring your chin down towards your chest, you have a much uh, lower risk of choking when swallowing. Um, and I don't recommend everyone walk around you know, with their chin <laughs> down chewing. Um, but that will, especially if you're trying to swallow something whole, that will help it pass into the correct pipe, not the windpipe, but into the esophagus um, and help you swallow a little easier. So all those times when I saw her trying to swallow her pills and, and having some difficulty, she actually should have been putting her chin down, not up mm. towards the ceiling. Got it. Okay. Well, glad I asked. That's an interesting tip. Yeah. All right, we're going to go into our last section now, which is about vaccines. Um, and this, I'm going to start with a pretty dumb question. Is a vaccine okay. the same thing as a booster shot? Absolutely. Um, okay. <laughs> I was like, this it's, might be it's the a, dumbest question I ask. No, that. no, it's it's a totally reasonable question. Um, we use a lot of different terms in, in medicine. And a booster is an addition vaccine to a vaccine, if that makes sense. Um mm -hmm. If, if you don't mind, I'll jump into how vaccines work a little bit because I think yeah, it helps yeah. me explain what a booster is. Um, sure. So basically vaccines prime our immune system to respond to something. It's mainly uh, like viral is the one people see all the time is the flu vaccine, but it can be bacterial also. And what we do is we either give the body a little piece of the bacteria that's been changed so it's not so infectious, or we give it a piece of the protein or some part of the bacteria so that the body can say, okay, this is not normal. This shouldn't be here. I need to attack this but we only give it a very small dose. So the body 
recognizes this and builds up a reaction to that component or that bacteria or virus in some cases. And what happens is when you're exposed to that at some point in your life, when you're exposed to that virus, you're exposed to that bacteria, your body will say, okay, I've actually seen this before. I'm not unsure about what to do. I know exactly what cells I need to send to kill this thing off that's not supposed to be here. So you get a very strong, very focused response when you're exposed to that pathogen or that whatever's making you sick. Um, and so that's why we do vaccinations. Now, sometimes our body needs either a boost to just build a little more immunity or a boost to kind of remember what we're looking for. So it'll say, yeah, I saw that sometime, but I'm not exactly sure if that's the right thing. So I'm only gonna kind of do a little bit of a response. But if we give a booster dose every so often, the body will say, oh no, I, I definitely have seen this. I know that this is bad and I need a full response. Um, and so that's how boosters work in a nutshell, if that makes sense. So a booster shot, that would be like another shot of that same vaccine? Exactly. In most cases, the, the most common booster that people receive like as an adult would be a Tdap or a tetanus booster. So if you get cut, um, you step on a nail, any of those things, depending on when your last tetanus shot was, you may need an update on your tetanus shot. And basically what that's doing is providing that bacteria that causes tetanus. It's providing a small dose, an attenuation or a kill, va uh, kill vaccine, um, depending on what you're getting. And uh, it gives the body that that kind of cue to say, no, no, we know that this isn't supposed to be here. And if that nail that I stepped on did have tetanus on it, now my body is saying, okay, we just saw a boost that this shouldn't be here. And so if we find any of this, we need to go attack it. Um, and that will last for a certain, like it can last up to 10 years in adults. So is that why we're encouraged like every year to get a flu shot because it's like quote unquote flu season. And so there's like a risk there. And it's like, just take this just to make sure you don't get it if you are exposed. Is that the point? Sort of. Okay. Yeah. This is why I'm on this end yeah. and you do the answers. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. So so the flu is a little bit different. I mentioned earlier that the common cold is very hard to treat because it's it can be composed of so many different viruses and they mutate so fast, so much faster than bacteria can. Um, the same goes for the flu. Um, so when we give a flu vaccine, it's actually based off of the year prior's flu strands that they saw and based on whatever these smart scientists uh, research, they're able to figure out what they think is going to come back that year. And again, I'm not a vaccine scientist, but mm -hmm. um, it, is, it is composed of what we've seen in the past. It's those components. And every year that's different. The flu that we see from one year to another is always changing because it evolves mm -hmm. or um, mutates so quickly. And so when we get that new vaccine, let's say uh, the first in... 2019, the flu had a, a protein on the outside that looked like a spike or a triangle. So people got sick and then we made that in the lab, the triangle protein, and we gave it to everyone. We said, okay, if this comes around again, everybody's ready for triangle. But the flu mutates and it makes a square. And now it comes out the next year and it has square. So even if it has triangle and square, we may get some reaction and some uh, prevention and quicker immune response to the triangle because it's there but we may not get a full response because it doesn't have that square component on it. So that's kind of a, an oversimplification, but that's why we do the flu so often is because it just changes so often. Is this necessary? Like when, you know, when you obviously see the encouragement to get it, but if you feel like you're healthy, like, do you think you should still get it anyway? Or like, what are 
symptoms that might make you not do it? Like, what is the conversation with that? Sure. So I think the kind of quote unquote anti-vax or concern about vaccination, uh, the conversation goes very deep from microchips all the way up to, hey, there are real side effects that I'm concerned about. And it's totally reasonable to question and have conversations with your healthcare provider. That's why we're here. And no healthcare provider should be forcing you to do things. Our goal, or at least my personal goal, is to provide information and to try and help guide judgment and decision to help my patients make the right decision for them. So what are some of the benefits? Um, The flu can be very, very serious. It does kill a lot of people every year. It kills healthy people. It kills sick people. One big benefit is decreasing your risk of getting, you know, gravely ill um, or ill at all. I mean, the flu for those that have had true flu, and this is a a point of contention that I really, uh, it it gets me going. People will get sick in the winter and they'll say, I had the flu. You did not have the flu. Uh, If you didn't, if you got up from the couch over a five-day period, you did not have the flu. The real influenza is for 95, I mean, making up numbers, but for a large percent, a large, large percent of people is very debilitating for at least a week. It's a very, very serious illness. Um, it's something that most people can overcome on their own. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't get flu shots. So we, t- we talked about the fact that it's very helpful. It can prevent you from getting very seriously ill or even prevent you from having that miserable illness. One of the other important things though is almost everybody has a mother, a father, a grandmother, a grandfather, who is older, who may have health conditions, who may be immunocompromised, and they may themselves not even be eligible for the vaccine because of conditions that they have in their health. And so by being young and healthy and saying, well, I don't really need the vaccine because I'm young and healthy. And even if I don't get the vaccine, I'm going to be fine. Like I'm going to get sick and I'll be sick for five to seven days and then I'll start to feel better. But what might not happen, and this is what people are starting to see or understand more with COVID is yeah, you can be 19 years old and get COVID and essentially be fine. Lose your taste or your smell. You have a little runny nose and you're like, that was nothing. That wasn't bad. But the problem is you're shedding viral particles that whole time. And you go home and you give that to your mother who maybe is 50, 60 years old. And she gets really sick, but she's, she's going to be okay. She gets over it. But she saw her grandmother before she got sick. And now you've inadvertently given that virus to your grandmother who is old with high blood pressure and diabetes and has a, let's say a liver transplant and can't take any kind of medicine that would, or, or vaccines or things like that. Now, you know, she's at an incredibly high risk, high mortality risk. And so part of it is kind of the responsibility of those around you. There are valid concerns. There's a lot of theories that uh, I didn't prepare necessarily to debunk that are just um, when you understand science and medicine, absolutely painful to listen to like the microchips. Um, and there are some realistic things. I mean, there's a condition called Guillain-Barre. Uh, it is very, very rare to get this condition. Um, but it is, it, it's a temporary um, paralysis from that you can get from the flu shot. It's an inflammatory response. It happens in an incredibly low number of patients, but it's possible. And so a lot of people, rather than understanding how science and, and medicine works and how data by numbers works, they'll just fixate on one example. And we're seeing this right now with the COVID vaccine. There was a nurse who passed out on TV. We have vaccinated tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Americans already. But yet everybody is saying, well, one nurse passed out on TV. See, it's a bad vaccine. And for those who understand science and medicine a little bit more, 
numerically, that's, I mean, I hate to say the word insignificant because it's a human and her passing out matters. And we have reason, or we think we have a good reason for why she passed out. But, you know, medically and scientifically, that number is insignificant. One out of 100,000 or 200,000 literally almost doesn't show up on, on a statistical evaluation. So a lot of times we have to look from a public health perspective and say, yes, there is a risk. There's also a risk when you go out and you drink with your friends heavily that you could have an adverse effect from that. If you choose to, some states have recreational marijuana, there is pretty significant risk with that. Other people choose to drive their cars fast or skydive or do, you know, so there are risks with everything that we do. All of life is about risk mitigation and making the decisions that work for you. And so that's why ultimately I try to lay out the information for my patients and help them understand. But at the end of the day, it, I'm not going to tell them what to do. I'm not going to tell them to stop skydiving and I'm not going to tell them they have to get a vaccine. I recommend, but it's up to them. Yeah, I think that's a perfect way to explain that answer. You giving the facts and you opening for that person to make the decision for themselves. I think that's the way it's got to be. Well, thank you for all of that education. For people who want to get more medical knowledge from you, how can people continue learning from you? Uh, well, I have, of course, the TikTok, the Instagram, the YouTube. Uh, my username is See the Medlife on both TikTok and Instagram. And you can find my YouTube channel. It is called The Medlife uh, over on YouTube. It's a little bit more lighthearted, some fun reacting videos as well as information. So I'd be happy to have you as a follower or subscriber across any of those platforms. And uh, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. And thanks for injecting some knowledge in us. Uh, that was really lame. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> thank you everybody for listening. Even if you're not a doctor, please have some patience. Uh, we will be back with another episode very soon. I hope this episode helped. Please subscribe, rate, and review to support the podcast. And follow along for more hacks, tips, and failed attempts on Instagram at How Did I Get This Far Pod. Well, that's as far as we will get for now. I'm Amanda Ogan. Thanks for listening.